Hey, just a note. I am so excited to announce that Method and Madness is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival on August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. The festival is for you, the listeners, and is designed around your desire to mingle and interact with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Check out all the details at truecrimepodcastfestival.com, including info on how to get tickets and hotel reservations. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I hope to see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. A woman discovered murdered in her own bedroom. The obvious suspect, the man who found her, her son. But he was about to provide police with a far-fetched narrative of the night's events. This is Method and Madness, Episode 45, The Hitchhiker. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness 70-year-old mother, grandmother, and twice-widowed homemaker Dorothy Donovan lived on Killens Pond Road in Harrington, Delaware, a small city of about two square miles with a population of approximately 2,300 in 1991. It's an area well-known to Delaware locals, as well as nearby states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, as it hosts the annual state fair in July. Summer had just begun, and it was around 3 a.m. on June 23rd, a Sunday, when Dorothy was discovered brutally murdered inside her home, in her bedroom. She'd been stabbed to death, a pillow left over her face, and her body posed in a way that suggested sexual assault had taken place. Just an hour or two earlier, Her 40-year-old son, Charles Holden, who lived in a trailer adjacent to Dorothy's home, had called the police. Charles had been concerned that a potentially dangerous man he'd encountered earlier that night may have been on his property, and so an officer responded and the two entered Dorothy's home only to discover a nightmare. Police immediately suspected Dorothy's son was her killer, and he was about to spin a ridiculous yarn to try to get police to look elsewhere. Let's dive in. Dorothy May Bonney was born on May 18, 1921, in Maryland's Caroline County, to John and Ethel. She married Wallace Holden, and the pair had three children, their oldest, a son Charles, followed by two daughters, Brenda and Diana. Wallace passed away of a heart attack in 1958 at the age of 44, 
The couple's children were only eight, seven, and four years old at the time. Dorothy later remarried to Ralph Donovan, a farmer, and she and her three children moved into what would be Dorothy's forever home, a farmhouse on 163 acres in Harrington, Delaware. Ralph later passed away of a stroke in 1987, and Dorothy was kept busy with her seven grandchildren, her now adult children, and her hobbies, gardening, canning vegetables, attending church, and tending to animals. She was the kind of mother that her children called a friend, and she phoned them daily, whether it was to have a chat or to say goodnight. On June 22, 1991, her son Charles, who lived in a trailer about 60 feet from the farmhouse, was working the second shift at a nearby factory. Dorothy would pack him lunch before he started work, and ordinarily she'd stay up until she knew he was home safely. On that night, however, Dorothy's family hoped she'd been asleep, that she hadn't seen what was coming, what she'd predicted, in a sense. She had told her daughter, Brenda, just two days earlier that she had a feeling something bad was going to happen to her in that house. When Charles and the responding officer entered Dorothy's home around 3 a.m., there was an immediate indication that something was wrong. A pane of glass in the back door was broken, but there were no signs of robbery inside the farmhouse. Nothing missing, no ransacked drawers or cabinets. Up the stairs, the two went, with Charles calling out for his mother, but there was no response. Upon entering Dorothy's bedroom, they found her in bed with a pillow over her head. She'd been deceased for about two hours, the result of more than a dozen stab wounds to her chest, arms, and face. The crime scene was described by Detective Greg Nolt as very bloody and brutal. The cause of death was later determined to be massive hemorrhaging. Dorothy lived alone and nobody else had been with her that night. She had been coming down with a cold and had possibly gone to bed early, her killer placing the pillow over her head led police to the conclusion that she'd known her murderer. Killers will exhibit this sort of behavior covering their victims in a blanket if they have some form of an emotional attachment to them. But it wasn't just the pillow that led them to believe the victim was familiar with her killer. The crime scene suggested overkill, which can also be indicative of murder of an intimate nature. And while her body was positioned to look as though she'd been sexually assaulted, the medical examiner found no evidence of that. And if the killer had broken a window to get in, how is it that Dorothy didn't wake up to investigate? How was she still in bed during a break-in? Why was her purse, which was in the dining room with cash inside, untouched? All of this hinted at one suspect, someone very close to Dorothy, who she would have expected to possibly walk into her home that night, someone who wouldn't have been interested in rummaging through purses for loose cash, someone who may have had a motive with a higher financial gain. Charles Holden was the likely suspect 
He could have killed his mother and staged the scene to make it look like a break-in. Though investigators had yet to fully flesh out a motive, it was later discovered that Dorothy had recently taken out a life insurance policy. And guess who was the beneficiary? Charles was taken down to police headquarters to be interrogated, but almost immediately, the officers were extremely skeptical of Charles's unlikely alibi. He began to tell a complicated, elaborate story that sounded so ridiculous, so unbelievable, that they told him it just didn't make sense. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's better com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Charles Holden, upon discovering his mother murdered in her bedroom, had said to the officer, I can't believe he killed her. Now, while at police headquarters, he refused to take a polygraph and told investigators that he was not responsible for his mother's murder, that it was a stranger he'd encountered earlier that night. He described in his interrogation the following. Charles, who was heavily in debt, was working the second shift at a factory with the DuPont Company, and after work, stopped at a Hardee's, a fast-food restaurant chain in Harrington, around midnight. He ordered his usual coffee, and a hamburger. After he got his food, he made his way across the parking lot and into his truck. As he was putting it into reverse, a man he'd never seen before approached his passenger side window and asked Charles for a ride to Milford, which is approximately eight miles away from Harrington. He told Charles he needed to get to the hospital where his sister had just given birth. Although it was late and Charles was eager to get home, he agreed to drive the man just a few miles and started down Highway 14. About three miles down the road, Charles pulled off to the side and stopped in front of Blake's garage. He told the man, this is as far as I can take you, as the turnoff to get to Charles's home was coming up. Charles told police that the man had been acting normal up until that moment, but learning that he was being dropped off aggravated him, and he became agitated, arguing with Charles that he needed to get all the way to the hospital. Charles continued to insist 
that the man needed to get out of the truck, and he pointed to a nearby payphone where he could call someone for help, but the hitchhiker wasn't going without a fight. He lunged at Charles and tried to grab the wheel. Charles frantically took his keys from the ignition and hopped out of the driver's side door onto the pavement. He ran off looking for help, and the hitchhiker pursued him. Charles was terrified when he realized the stranger was now holding a weapon. He described it as something sharp, a knife or a screwdriver. Pointing the object at Charles, the man threatened to kill him if he didn't drive him to Milford. Charles said at this point he relented and agreed to drive the man to his destination, and the two walked back to the truck. But Charles got in first, put the key in the ignition, and took off, his hand throbbing from the coffee that had spilled out of the cup during the struggle and burned his wrist. He left the hitchhiker behind in the dust. Thoroughly freaked out, Charles decided not to head home immediately. His mother's home and his adjacent trailer were only half a mile away from where he dropped the hitchhiker off, and he wanted to ensure that the man couldn't follow him. So Charles drove around for a bit, giving it just enough time that it felt safe, and finally headed toward his home. He pulled the truck up to the farmhouse, and in the dark, saw a man in his yard, right next to the trailer. It looked like the hitchhiker, wandering on the property. There was just enough moonlight to make out who it was, and Charles was almost certain it was the man who'd just threatened him. Charles was rattled by the turn of events. How did the man find his home? In order to get there from the area of Blake's garage, you'd have to make a turn and walk about half a mile. And without knowing Charles's name or address, how had the hitchhiker figured out that this was his home? Was he there lying in wait? Charles drove off, and from a payphone he called the police at 1.19 a.m. and asked for an officer to come meet him and accompany him to his mother's house, where a potentially dangerous man he'd given a ride to was waiting outside. Officer Myrna Williams Kinney was on her way to respond, and meanwhile, Charles said, he tried calling his mother several times to warn her that someone was outside the house, but he couldn't get an answer. When Officer Kinney responded about 90 minutes later, she met Charles at the Hardy's parking lot. There, he elaborated on the events that had just taken place and how he was worried about going home and possibly being attacked by a man with a weapon. The officer followed Charles in her patrol car, and when the two pulled up to Dorothy's home, they didn't see the man anywhere outside. Charles hoped that he'd gotten tired of waiting and walked off. By now, it was 3 a.m. on Killen's Pond Road, and the house was completely dark. Charles and the officer first walked toward the trailer to check it out, but nothing looked disturbed. The trailer doors were all locked. Next, they walked across the yard to Charles's mother's house and saw a broken pane of glass in the back door. They entered. Charles called out for his mother, and the silence was deafening. He knew something was wrong. 
Dorothy would always stay up until she knew her son was home safely. Officer Kinney and Charles ascended the farmhouse stairs and headed right for Dorothy's bedroom, and that's when they found her murdered. Now seated at a table, talking to two police officers just hours later, Charles was convinced the man he'd given a ride to and who had tried to attack him in his truck had somehow located his rural home a half mile from where he was dropped off, that he'd walked there, broken a window, entered his mother's house, killed her, and then vanished into the night, all within a tight time frame as Charles drove around. He described the hitchhiker as a black male in his 30s, approximately 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 9, wearing a pair of brown pants with a brown plaid shirt and plastic framed glasses with large lenses. If you're thinking this all sounds completely unbelievable, you're not alone. The investigators were incredulous. None of what Charles was saying was probable or likely. In fact, it sounded like an outright lie, a poorly constructed cover-up story. And that story didn't match up with the evidence at the scene. How would a stranger know where Charles lived or even by chance happen upon the very house that Charles's mother lived in, all within the short time that Charles was driving around? And further, in that time frame, the hitchhiker was able to enter the home and navigate it in the dark without waking up Dorothy, stab her repeatedly, and then pose her body in a manner that suggested her killer was someone she knew. None of the evidence suggested a random killing, but rather a premeditated crime covered up to look like a robbery gone wrong. Season 13 of Forensic Files featured an episode on the case with audio from Charles's interrogation. Detectives repeatedly told Charles that he was not believable and said, quote, You're saying the words, but you're not convincing. An idiot wouldn't believe that story. They told Charles that the evidence left behind was going to tell the truth. The weapon hadn't been located, but the evidence collected at the scene did include blood on a light switch, which was later revealed to not be Dorothy's blood. A bloody palm print was also found on a handrail. The killer hadn't been very careful. Police took a print of Charles's palm. Aside from not taking a polygraph, he was generally being cooperative. When the bloody palm print found on the handrail at Dorothy's house was compared to Charles's palm print, to the shock of investigators, it was not a match. Perhaps the blood found on the light switch would reveal the identity of the killer. Once tested and compared to Charles's blood type, that too was not a match. With Charles insisting that his story was true, the police now suspected that the man he claimed he'd never met before may have actually been hired or that Charles and the man had been in cahoots. The police needed to break down the entire narrative and verify what they were being told. How did Charles actually know the person that may have killed Dorothy? Was this a poorly constructed 
murder-for-hire plot? Investigators went to the Hardys in Harrington and began questioning employees there to check out this quote-unquote hitchhiker alibi. There, they received confirmation that there was, in fact, a young black male with glasses in the parking lot the night of June 22nd, and several people had seen him asking others for a ride. The Delaware State Police created a composite sketch of the hitchhiker that Charles described and circulated it. The following week, services for Dorothy were held at Berry Funeral Home. Her obituary said she left behind three children, two sisters, and seven grandchildren. Nobody that attended the funeral could imagine anyone wanting to harm Dorothy. She had no enemies. While Dorothy's family were beginning the grieving process, they were comforted in knowing that police were acting swiftly. They had a murder to solve. In what would be the biggest coincidence the investigators had ever encountered, it seemed that Charles Holden's far-fetched story may have some truth to it. His encounter with the hitchhiker on the side of the road by Blake's garage was seen by a witness. This witness statement, along with several people confirming the existence of the man in the Hardy's parking lot and the blood found in Dorothy's home that didn't belong to her or to Charles, well, all this meant it was time to dig deeper. Detectives searched the area for a man matching the description of the hitchhiker. They continued to distribute flyers that detailed the composite drawing of the man wanted for questioning in the 1991 murder of Dorothy Donovan. Lead investigator Lieutenant Michael Warrington talked about the town of Harrington being one of those small towns where everyone knows each other, and he soon discovered that the man in question had knocked on at least one other back door that night before reaching Dorothy's farmhouse. But how did he manage to slip away so quickly and leave town? It was suspected that the man may not be from the area. He could be anywhere by now. Police were not yet ready to call the man a suspect, officially anyway, just someone wanted for questioning. Dorothy's children could barely stand to look at her farmhouse, a place they had called their own home for years during childhood, a house full of gatherings, holidays, and overall happy memories. Dorothy's daughter, Diana, couldn't help but wonder how things may have turned out differently if Dorothy hadn't been coming down with a cold that Saturday. Originally, the plan was that Diana's 13-year-old son was going to spend the night at his grandmother's house and then attend church with her the next day. But with Dorothy not feeling well, those plans were postponed. Now, Diana was left with what-ifs. What if her son had spent the night at Dorothy's would he have been harmed? Or would things have gone a different way and Dorothy would still be here? And on top of their overwhelming grief and the constant what-ifs, both Brenda and Diana were struggling to understand how their mother's murder happened. Was it planned? And why her? Had their brother Charles somehow been involved? And if his story of that night was true— why had he given a stranger a ride? How do you go on knowing a member of your family directly or indirectly caused such a tragic event? 
Those questions started to eat away at the relationship that Brenda and Diana had with their brother Charles, and they became estranged. While Dorothy's family was grappling with the night in question, the case was getting cold. For investigators, it was time to start broadening their search, and so they turned to the master and reached out to Unsolved Mysteries to see if the case could get more exposure, and perhaps a tip from just one viewer would lead to some answers. The producers of the popular TV show had been wanting to cover a story out of Delaware, and this one, they said, seemed solvable. It was May 12, 1995, that the episode aired on Unsolved Mysteries, urging anyone with information to contact authorities. But even Robert Stack couldn't help solve this one, and it generated very few leads. In 2001, two FBI profilers with the Behavior Science Unit in Quantico took a look at the case. Agents Mark Safarik and Mary Allen O'Toole specialized in sexual homicide of elderly women. They concluded from looking over the case file that Dorothy knew her killer. Agent Safarik said, quote, Some stranger did not break into the house, murder her, and leave. This is someone who knows the victim, knows her well, and knows that they can come here and she will be the only victim in the house. Both agents did a walkthrough of the farmhouse late one night to experience what the killer had, walking through the yard, entering the house from the back door, and finding their way in the pitch black. They read in the file that the first officer who responded that night in 1991 with Charles Holden had noted that the hole made in the window in the back door was so small she would have been unable to put her hand through it to reach the doorknob. The producers at Unsolved Mysteries were right, though. This case was solvable, and it would eventually come down to good old forensics. In May of 2004, authorities took the DNA collected from the blood at the crime scene and entered it into the CODIS database. And then, in November 2005, authorities in Maryland reached out to the investigators in Delaware to let them know the submitted DNA had a hit. CODIS hit on the profile of Gilbert E. Cannon, a 41-year-old man from Delmar, Maryland. He had recently served time in prison for a robbery he committed in 1997 when he threatened a motel employee and took off with cash from the drawer. But his criminal history actually went as far back as 1981, with a record of convictions for theft, robbery, burglary, resisting arrest, escape after conviction, disorderly conduct, and assault. Police found Gilbert Cannon living about 40 miles from Dorothy's home, and they brought him in for questioning. He had never before been questioned regarding Dorothy Donovan's murder. Gilbert was a black male and would have been 26 years old in June of 1991. He was 5 foot 7, 140 pounds, with large framed glasses. And he was an absolute physical match to the sketch that had been created in 1991. During the police interrogation, 
Gilbert Cannon adamantly denied killing Dorothy Donovan. Investigators told him they knew for a fact that he had been at the farmhouse that night. They had blood that matched his DNA. And when they took a print of Gilbert's palm, it was a match to the one found on the hand railing in Dorothy's home. Still, even faced with the facts, Gilbert refused to admit his involvement until just a couple of hours later when he asked to speak with the detectives again. Gilbert Cannon was ready to come clean. He described the night in question, that he recalled walking around the Hardy's parking lot high on cocaine looking for more drugs. That's when he met a man who agreed to give him a ride. He didn't know who it was, but now knew the man to be Charles Holden. He described the ride in the truck and that he'd attacked the driver before being left on the side of the road. He said he'd been very cold, wet, and tired, and just wanted to find an abandoned house to sleep in. He started walking, looking for a house, and came across the one dark home in the area. He assumed it was empty. It was a mere coincidence that it was the home of the man he'd taken a ride from. Gilbert said he broke a window pane in the back door and entered. As he was walking through the house, he came across an elderly woman who had heard the break-in and started down the stairs. It startled him, and he recalled that upon seeing him, she retreated back into her room. Gilbert panicked, didn't want to be caught, and so he put his hand over the woman's mouth and pushed her onto the bed. He claimed he didn't clearly remember what happened next, and it wasn't until this police interview that he even realized there was a connection between the woman he'd killed that night and the man who had given him a lift. The mystery man, who had managed to remain elusive for 14 years, was now confessing to Dorothy's murder. He insisted he'd acted alone. In January of 2006, Gilbert Cannon was arrested, and in April 2007, he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder as part of a plea to avoid the death penalty. Superior Court Judge Robert B. Young sentenced him to life in prison with no possibility for parole. Gilbert Cannon is currently serving his sentence at the Delaware Department of Corrections in Dover. Dorothy's daughter, Brenda, later said that her family was satisfied with the outcome and the rift that had formed between Charles and his sisters could start to be repaired now that it was known that Charles hadn't been involved in their mother's murder. The implausible story told by Charles Holden had all been true, a head-scratching coincidence, a series of events that any other day could have been mundane and ordinary. The simple act of leaving work, grabbing a quick bite, and coming across a stranger in need, deciding in the moment to be a good Samaritan. All of this could have been a fleeting moment. But as fate would have it, the concept of sliding doors, that one seemingly inconsequential act, could alter life's trajectory did just that. A career criminal took a life and stole a wonderful person, a friend of those that loved her. My heart goes out to Dorothy Donovan's family. 
Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, all you have to do is leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected Podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.